Good afternoon, everyone, and it's a, it's a great pleasure to be here today, um, and uh, warm welcome also to the people online. Um, and many thanks to the PIL discussion group and the law faculty for inviting me and to Natasha uh, for organizing this talk and uh, uh, my visit in Oxford. Um, so in this presentation, um, I want to give a brief overview of my uh, book, The Ecology of War and Peace, uh, which was published last year uh, with CUP, in order to have a more informal conversation during the Q&A session. Um, I will highlight the key concerns underpinning the book, say something about uh, the literature I engage with and the methodology I use, and point out the main intervention um, arguments, um, and finally sketch the contour of a future research agenda, which builds upon the findings of the book. So early in 2004, the journal Science published a rather controversial article by Sir David King, Tony Blair's chief scientific advisor. In that piece, King reproached the Bush administration for its failure to acknowledge the seriousness of anthropogenic climate change and its unwillingness to take steps to curb its country disproportionate share of greenhouse gas emissions. In light of mounting scientific evidence and the growing severity of extreme weather events, he argued, we need to acknowledge that climate change is the most severe problem we are facing today, more serious even than the threat of terrorism. Although King did not push the comparison any further, his message was clear. The world's richest country had failed to confront the threat of global warming with the same political urgency it had accorded to the lesser threat of terrorist violence. In the following weeks, King's article provoked strenuous effort at damage control within the Blair government and fueled a stream of invective from, the, from climate change skeptics and conservatives who accused him of alarmist environmental rhetoric and that diminished the importance of the war on terror and the tragedy of those who died in it. Yet King's assessment of the relative dangers posed by climate change and terrorism was based on uncomfortable evidence. According to the United States National Counterterrorism Center, only nine Americans were killed in terrorist attacks outside of Iraq in 2005. That is approximately the same number of people that died in the US that year on, of whooping cough. The National Counterterrorism Center also calculated that 14,600 deaths from terrorist attacks occurred globally in 2005, of which 55% in Iraq. And as noted by Dennis Soren, that means that outside of war-torn Iraq, the total number of people who died at the end of terrorists in 2005 was less than the number that died each day that year of HIV or AIDS. So in 2019, the World Health Organization estimated that between 2030 and 2050, climate change is expected to cause approximately 250,000 additional deaths per year from malnutrition, malaria, diarrhea, and heat stress. Further, according to the latest report by the IPCC, published just a couple of weeks ago, between 2010, 2010 and 2020, human mortality from floods, drought, and storms was 15 times higher in vulnerable regions compared to the rest of the world. 
These regions are located in West, Central, and East Africa, South Asia, Central and South America, small island developing states. Only this summer, the devastating monsoon floods in Pakistan resulted in the death of nearly 1,700 people. Floods from the torrential rains wiped out entire villages, devastated millions of acres of crops, and made millions of people homeless. The UN Secretary General, who visited Pakistan in September, said, have seen many humanitarian disasters in the world, but have never seen climate carnage on this scale. I have simply no words to describe what I've seen today. So when confronted with the disproportionate effects of climate change upon the most vulnerable, the imbalance between the moral gravity we attribute to direct but limited forms of violence, such as terrorist attacks, and the casual expediency with which we accept the systemic harm inflicted upon millions by climate change and the ecological collapse is striking. Part of this imbalance, I would suggest, derives from dominant legally sanctioned definitions of violence. Terrorist acts and other humanitarian atrocities understood as direct and premeditated infliction of physical harm by identifiable perpetrators upon identifiable victims fit precisely within our common sense notion of violence, whereas the manifold form of destruction and suffering associated with climate change, toxic pollution, and environmental degradation do not. So why is it so? This puzzle, or the question of the relationship between violence, visibility, and international law has been a key concern of my research for the past few years, and is at the core of uh, my recent book, The Ecology of War and Peace, which I'm presenting today. Uh, professor and now judge at the ICJ, uh, Hilary Charlesworth, has famously argued that the discipline of international law often develops in response to crisis. Writing in the context of the military intervention in Kosovo, she observes that one problem with the crisis model is that it leads lawyers to concentrate on single events or issues while missing the larger picture. In turn, this attitude results in a poor understanding of the complexity of global concern and therefore in unsatisfactory approaches. Notably, she points out how the crisis model is silent on structural injustices, which remain sidelined in mainstream legal discourses and practices. International law deployment of the crisis narrative is therefore, according to Judge Charlesworth, never neutral. By elevating certain crises, international law distracts from other pressing issues. While, of course, there are many implications of understanding international law as a crisis discourse, this presentation I want to draw attention to what that discourse obscures, namely the less visible but more pervasive socio-ecological dimensions of militarism and warfare. In thinking about these issues, I built upon two theories that originate from non-legal fields of study and are concerned with understanding the normal, unexceptional, anonymous, and often unscrutinized violence woven into the routine workings of power structures. The first is the concept of slow violence, developed by the American political scholar Rob Nixon. In slow violence and the environmentalism of the poor, Rob Nixon claims that there are forms of violence 
notably those associated with climate change, deforestation, and the environmental aftermath of war that takes place gradually, often invisibly, which equals low violence. <clears throat> Sorry. The violence associated with this phenomena, he argues, is neither spectacular nor instantaneous, but rather incremental and accretive. And this raises, of course, several theoretical, political, and legal questions. Nixon observes that the casualties of slow violence are most likely not to be seen, not to be counted, as they take years or decades to occur, in contrast with more spectacular, immediately sensational, and hyper-visible threats, such as terrorist attacks. So in his book, he offers a number of examples of the delayed effects of slow environmental violence. Uh, the most relevant, I would say, for the present analysis is the discussion of the impact of precision warfare upon the environment and human health. So he observes that during the 1991 Gulf War, American troops fired weapons containing 340 tons of depleted uranium, which contributed to making the Gulf War the most toxic war in Western military history, at least until today. Operation Desert Storm was presented as a quick victory and a demonstration of the technological superiority of the American military, which, in his opinion, hides the long-term legacy of depleted uranium on water, land, air, Iraqi and Kuwaiti people, and American troops as well. Indeed, hundreds of thousands of veterans reported the so-called Gulf War Syndrome, experiencing a spike in leukemia, renal collapse, and birth deformities. Nixon thus underlines a dissonance between the idea of smart war and precision warfare, which are intended to shorten conflict and reduce the number of casualties, and their slow violence, inflicting off-camera casualties. The second concept I draw upon is that of structural violence, which was given early expression by Johan Galtung in the 1960s. Galtung famously formulates the concept of structural violence in opposition of that of personal violence. He notes that whereas personal violence can be traced back to concrete persons as actors, in the case of structural violence, there may not be any actor who directly arms another person. The violence, he says, is built into the structure and shows up as unequal power and consequently as unequal life chances. He points out, out for instance, that dying of tuberculosis hundreds of years ago was to large extent unavoidable for those who contracted it. Given modern advantage, advances, Galtung suggests dying from it today is best seen as a form of structural violence bound up with inequity, inequality, maldistribution of resources, and the dereliction of public services. So most of you would certainly think of the many, too many COVID-19 related deaths, especially among the most marginalized segment of the world's population. Nixon and Galton's theories have obviously many implications. Three are, in my view, particularly relevant for the legal uh, analysis and critique conducted in the book. The first is the rejection that violence occur only occurs only when there is a visible perpetrator or agent to whom responsibility can be attributed. Legal doctrine such as attribution and causation, intention as the mens rea requirement for core international crimes, personalized violence, 
by connecting certain harmful consequences to an identifiable actor, often imagined as an individual with conscious and free will. Conversely, arms that cannot be traced back to an agent are dismissed as accidents, unavoidable, unintended, historically given features of our present world. Think again about the deaths and suffering caused by the floodings in Pakistan. The second is the need to pay attention to the root causes of wars and insecurity, rather than only focusing on the most visible effects or consequences. As I argue in the book, an important dimension of contemporary conflict that has been marginalized in international legal debates concerns the unequal distribution of natural resources as drivers of violence and instability. So while legal norms and regulation have been developed to address greed as a motivation for starting and prolonging conflict, the complexities of grievances in uh, countries in the global south have not received the same level of attention by international lawyers. Third is, uh, <clears throat> sorry, Galton's distinction between negative and positive peace. While negative peace um, as you know, means simply the absence of direct and visible armed violence, the concept of positive peace requires something more. It demands to address the underlying causes of conflict, including poverty and marginalization. In our case, it requires that issues such as access to natural resources, social inequality linked to resource extraction, and environmental degradation are put forward in efforts to build more peaceful societies. Rob Nixon and Johan Galton's theories are, in my view, helpful starting point to investigate international law engagement with what I call the ecology of war and peace. So let's say something about international law. International law as a discipline and practice has been concerned with violence and war since its modern origin. And as decolonial and post-colonial scholars have indeed claimed, violence is foundational to international law. But humanity's relationship to nature has also been equally central to international lawmaking, as observed by scholars such Usha Natarajan, Karen Michelson, and Julia Dan. Yet only quite recently, the intersection of nature, violence, and conflict has received attention in legal scholarship, becoming over the years a niche area of research and practice. So over the last couple of decades, a prolific debate on the protection of the environment in relation to armed conflict has emerged, driven by the need to fill gaps and clarify uh, ambiguities in the international legal landscape. Uh, so some scholars, for instance, have examined how rules and principles in international environmental law or human rights law could be interpreted to ensure that conflict-related environmental degradation or resource exploitation are addressed. The culmination of this debate has been the drafting by the International Law Commission of 27 principles on the protection of the environment in relation to armed conflict, which are expected to be adopted by the UN General Assembly this autumn. So while there is value, of course, in pushing for legal changes, the book takes a step back and moves beyond a mindset of problem solving. It unpacks and problematizes some of the assumptions about the environment, its relationship to conflict, underpinning legal debates and practices. 
And by moving across disciplinary boundaries and engaging with rich literature, international relations, and political sciences, it aims to develop a better theoretical understanding of how international law deals with the ecology of war and peace. The interrelation of violent conflict and the natural world has been the object of extensive study by political ecologists, economists, and scientists. A closer engagement with this literature, such as the literature in particular on environmental security, on the research course, the political economy of civil war and environmental peace building, is necessary to question the assumption that underlie international law. So my use of the term ecology is therefore not random. It's informed by discussion in the other fields of study and signals the value of taking a more holistic or systemic approach that considers the interrelations of environmental injustices, violent conflict, and insecurity more generally. So in other words, an ecological approach is based upon what we might call relational thinking rather than silos thinking, a point to which I will return in my conclusion. So since at least the 1980s, accumulating research in peace and conflict studies has sought to explain how environmental issues broadly understood may contribute to the outbreak, escalation, prolongation, and even resolution of violent conflict. Recognition of these issues has grown over the years and international efforts to manage them, including through international law, have risen. Ongoing debate framing climate change as an international peace and security issue are a clear indication of this trend and of the importance of expanding our understanding of the ecological dimensions of contemporary conflict. It's also important to note that this literature is not monolithic, Different criticism of theories on environmental scarcity and abundance have emerged in recent, in recent years, challenging early studies and underlining their failure to address the broader political and economic dynamics at play. So for instance, the literature on environmental security has been criticized for its excessive determinism, racial undertone and generalized conclusion. The research course thesis for its emphasis on greed as the motivation for starting armed struggles and on local pathologies through the reference to the failed or the weak state. Theories on the political economy of civil war for the limited attention to the mechanism of a globalized economy and supply chain. And environmental peace building for the indirect support to liberal peace interventions in post-conflict countries. So rather than thinking of these theories as external to the discipline and practice of international law, uh, my contention is that they have fed into the legal field, shaping how the ecology of war and peace has been approached, discussed, and addressed so far. Further, by privileging certain explanation of the nexus between environment and conflict over others, our own discipline has also contributed to a specific and arguably simplified understanding of these complex social realities. So what are the normative implications of adopting a certain frame to describe issues such as illegal resource exploitation and environmental security over other? What perspectives are privileged and what get marginalized? And what may happen if we change the lens 
through which we view the interrelation of ecology, war, and peace. To answer this question, in the book, I conduct a close analysis of the practice of three different institutions. Um, so one chapter is on international courts and tribunals, and uh, there I look at both the practice of uh, international criminal tribunals and the international court of justice, the UN Security Council, and another chapter is on third commissions in um, Sierra Leone, Liberia, and Timor-Leste. So I'm, while I'm more than happy to elaborate more on the, on the case studies in the Q&A, I would like to use the remainder of this presentation to sum summarize the key arguments and interventions of the book. And uh, these are intentionally controversial and provocative in the sense that they hope to provoke your questions and reactions. So first, uh, the book charts the different ideas of nature in rules governing war and the transition to peace and reveals how these legal norms preserve nature as a public or private property and as an economic asset to be protected from the excess of war. So in the laws of war, the environment is treated as instrumental to other more pragmatic goals associated with armed conflict. So ideas of nature as an object to be uh, targeted or collaterally damaged in the pursuit of military advantage, or as an economic asset to sustain the war effort, have shaped in scholarly debates and legal practices since the modern origins of the discipline. The way in which, for instance, post-World War II uh, tribunal dealt with squashed uh, hair practices and the exploitation of natural resources in Nazi-occupied territories confirms that the main concern was to establish legal accountability for conducts that while degrading the environment resulted in immediate harm to the enemy's property and the economic interest of the concerned countries or its economic capital. The vision of nature as a resource and commodity that needs to be protected against the threats posed by armed conflict is deeply entrenched in international law practices. In the armed activity case, uh, armed activities case, the ICJ, for instance, referred to the prohibition of pillage in the Usenbello to prescribe illegal resource exploitation by the occupying state, Uganda, without considering the more subtle ways in which exploitation practices entail ecological degradation, loss of livelihoods, and adverse social consequences. Likewise, the use uh, uh, by the Security Council of Chapter 7 measures to hand resource conflict and support good governance intervention in post-conflict countries focus on the economic dimension of resource extraction and reveal a limited attention to questions of sustainability in countries emerging from conflict. More recently, the idea of nature as a victim of war has also emerged and you can see that also in ongoing debates on the codification of the crime of ecocide. Yet even when framed as a victim, environmental degradation is acknowledged as a tragically unavoidable sacrifice in relation to the larger objectives of war. It's a casualty. That, that is not to say, of course, that um, concerns about environmental preservation and human well-being have been ignored in legal debates and practices. On the contrary, 
interpretative efforts to introduce environmental consideration into the laws of work have proliferated over the last couple of decades. Yet, as the nuclear weapons advisory opinion demonstrates, reconciling ecological sustainability and militarism were making remains a difficult task. Warfare is by definition the negation of sustainable development and intra or intergenerational equity. So while environmental law principle uh, may mitigate the rational underpinning the use in vellum, they cannot transform it. So ultimately international legal arguments struggle to reconcile the ethical justification for preserving nature with the pragmatic logic of warfare and militarism, raising the question of whether there can ever be a reconciliation between the two logics. So second, my argument is that by embracing a simplified understanding of the interrelation between nature, violence, and conflict, international legal discourses and practices jeopardize the prospect of creating more peaceful societies while perpetuating deeply rooted inequalities. Whereas the field of peace and conflict studies incorporates different theories, which are constantly subject to critical scrutiny and redefinition, two ideas have become quite popular in international law, resulting in a variety of policy and normative initiative. So one is the idea that resource abundance in the global South may have a negative impact on the quality of institution, economic performance, and the motives for starting or prolonging armed rebellion. This is also known as the paradox of plenty or the resource course. So the grid thesis in particular emphasizes, emphasizes the desire of rebel groups and warlords to enrich themselves through the exploitation of valuable commodities such as diamonds, uh, mineral, oil, and pave the way to the adoption of commodity and targeting section by the UN Security Council, for instance, in countries and in conflict like in Sierra Leone, Liberia, Angola, and also resulted in the development of governance regime regulating trade in resource commodities, uh, for instance, the Extractive Industry Transparency Initiative. So the book questions the assumptions implicit in these normative measures, notably the idea behind sanctions that once the promise for economic gain is reduced, the conflict will somehow die out. So unfortunately, as researchers show, that's not always the case. And moreover, as scholars like Michael Beavers has argued, by failing to consider how marginalization and inequality in resource access and distribution are also part of the stories of this conflict, this normative intervention may lead to the revival of old grievances or create new ones. So in other words, to go back to Johan Galtung, without confronting the slow and structural ecological violence involved in these conflicts, peace is more fragile. So the opposite has also been successfully argued that scarcity of natural resources, such as fresh water and croplands, can generate political instability in fragile countries. So against this background, the argument that climate change may increase risk and vulnerability and pose a threat to national, human, and collective security is gaining traction in policy circles. Concerns about climate security have also progressively fed into international law debates 
So while scholars have showed that the broader interpretation of the Security Council mandate may legitimize the adoption of measures dealing with the peace and security effects of climate change, the issue remains highly controversial as exemplified by the different position of developing countries. So for instance, the group 77, as opposed to small island developing states. So my research points out the limitations of existing conceptual and legal frameworks underpinning the practice of the UN Security Council. It bids upon feminist and critical ecologist perspective to suggest that we may need to rethink what peace and security means, mean in times of ecological disruptions. So when confronted with the violence of climate change, legal notions of peace and security must evolve beyond traditional military state security interests and include ecological sustainability and questions of redistribution. So moving forward, more research is needed to further interrogate certain ideas and assumptions that have dominated academic debates and shaped international legal practices in this area. In doing so, we may turn to the field of political ecology for some insights. Political ecology is an interdisciplinary field of study, including anthropologists, geographers, and sociologists with a rich research tradition that dates back at least to the 1980s. While of course it would be impossible to convey the diversity of this field, in concluding, I want to outline how a political ecological approach may open new lines of inquiry into the role of international law in times of raising authoritarianism, militarism, and socio-ecological disruptions. So a first point to be noted is that political uh, ecology would resist the urge to assign power of causation to the environment while maintaining that the effects of ecological problems being environmental degradation, pollution, deforestation, climate change, are always mediated by social factors. So as Nancy Peluso and Michael Watts point out in Violent Environments, the book that gives the title to this presentation, conflicts or struggles over natural resources cannot be understood without considering the structural dimension of uneven power relations. Such relations are made of local and global linkages. Therefore, rather than blaming local actors for local dysfunctions, being corruption or malgovernance, a more useful move would be to trace the broader political economic dynamics involved in the making of a conflict, as well as to interrogate the role of international law and law in general in the commodification of the natural world and in supporting global extractivism. In contrast with the depoliticized concept of environmental scarcity or abundance as drivers of conflict, a political ecological approach would emphasize the politicization of the environment through conflicts. So research in the field of political ecology points out that costs and benefits associated with environmental changes are for the most part distributed among actors unequally, which reinforces existing social and economic inequalities. So this argument, for instance, in these days has been made by indigenous people and global South countries during the COP27. So a political ecology perspective invites to pay attention to historical processes of environmental degradation and resource dispossession, to the legacies of colonialism, racialization, and gender discrimination in shaping the current world order, and 
arguably to shipping the current legal order. Further, in line with other critical traditions, it also invites to reconceptualize justice, international justice in broader terms as involving corrective, procedural, distributive, and social components. So I would suggest that opposing the determinism of certain literature and resisting the appeal of grand theories on the environment conflict nexus is empowering. If we agree that environmental factors do not unleash disorder or harmony in societies, but rather it is the institution that we create and the decision we make to determine the consequences for ongoing conflict and peace processes, then a new horizon of possibilities open up for our field. Law, and in particular international law, is part of such institutions and thus can play a role in realizing a more just and peaceful world or can be part of the problem by ignoring complexity and reproducing troubling assumptions. So by arguing for an ecological or relational approach and by exposing the limitations of silos thinking, so between issues, between disciplines, and also within international law, the book ultimately urges international legal scholars to reflect on the implication of defining a problem in certain terms and the possibilities associated with its critical redescription, to use an expression borrowed from Sandhya Pauja. And I want to emphasize that theory and practice go hand in hand in this endeavor, although the relationship between the two can be dialectical. So as put by Jerry Grove in his book, Savage Ecology, and I'm quoting, ideas matter, even if they cannot save us. Stories, explanations, and philosophical adventures are in my estimation, the best of what the human estate has to offer no matter how desperate things get, someone will still ask why this is happening. And we, still we will share in that question the possibility of thinking together. Thank you very much for your attention.